All right. So let's get rolling. Super special episode. It is a special episode. Gifted with Diana's presence. Yes. But I'm going to let you do the intro. Absolutely right. So we're joined today uh, in what is going to be a discussion about a topic that we're all hearing about all the time, which is security and AI. Uh, and we have the great good fortune of having a friend of the family be one Diana Kelly, who for any of you who are involved in cybersecurity, you already know her. Um, for those of you who may be newer to the marketplace, you may not realize yet that the most well-connected person in cybersecurity is about to be talking to you about security and AI. And this is Diana Kelly. And amongst a litany of things, the author, speaker, leader in a variety of forms and in information sharing, she's now currently and most recently joined uh, Protect AI as their CISO. So Diana, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us. It's always a blast. And Diana and I go way back. So this is always a blast for us. But uh, really interested to hear, and I know the audience is as well, how things are going what in the space of AI and cybersecurity. And if we could start, let's just start off with how you get to protect AI and sort of what you're doing there and what the, what the proposition is for them. Yeah, so the, the space of cybersecurity and, and AI and ML is just all over the place right now. There's a whole lot of fear. It reminds me of a lot of the cycles of new technology adoption that go on. Remember the cloud and everybody was like, I don't want to go to the cloud. It's scary. I was one of them. You know, it's scary. <laughs> I want all my data. Uh, and it, we're looking at AI and ML now, it's seeing a similar cycle going on where there's just a lot of fear, seeing a lot of reports about what's the what are, are you know companies worried about when they adopt AI and ML? And it's always securities at the top. But what that really means, I think, is where all the, the chaos is happening, because it can be everything from a deep fake or better social engineering to a deeper understanding of how getting the data wrong could create systemic or automated bias, for example, how we could get misinformation out of these systems when we're using them as pure analytics, not um, not talking political misinformation of one side trying to get the other side to think something, but an actual ML system that, for example, might be classifying cancerous or non-cancerous radiographs and x-rays. That's what I mean about misinformation or, or failure to give accurate information. So these kind of deeper security issues. And there's also the issue that is one that's very near and dear to our hearts, Jack, which is creating a secure system lifecycle for the tools and the software and workloads that you're developing and deploying. Because we met back in the SAST ounce days and looking at AI and ML, there's a similar need to shift left, create ML SecOps and focus on the development of the, the pipeline in a secure, auditable and transparent way. And that's the focus of, of Protect AI is really helping the engineering teams, the ML engineers, ensure that they've got auditability and security throughout the life cycle of their ML. Nice. It's, it sounds almost as though, the at least in the early generation, the ML SecOps work feels sort of a little bit like ensuring the integrity of the S-bomb, almost, but it's like an AI bomb. We call it an ML bomb, actually. Oh, oh excellent. <laughs> you got well, it right on. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's excellent. And for the yeah. audience, you know, yeah. we, we talk oftentimes about how composite software applications get more complicated from a cybersecurity um, perspective. And you heard us talk about this on the podcast, but because you don't know everything that goes into it. And I think that what Diane is working through is these things, which are actually going to be ways in which those components change. You're actually taking one step further in terms of understanding the integrity of what you're working with. 
That's exactly it. And now the components are also living in different places than we're previously aware of. It's not an IDE for a lot of data scientists. It's usually a Jupyter notebook, for example, but still they've got secrets in there and, and PII and PHI. The data itself, which is something that, you know, in software development, we're always like, just use dummy data and test, you know, don't ever bring production in. But in AI and ML, what you have to analyze live data. So data becomes part of what you need to be thinking about and you're training the systems on data too. So yeah, different components within the life cycle that need to be addressed. But it felt very comfortable for me because it's very similar to the software development life cycle. It's, it's different, but it's very similar. There are a lot of, of uh, you know, then and overlap. And if you think about making sure that the components of that life cycle and being able to manage them and audit them, you, know, you can apply that over into the ML world. Dana, if we could, maybe for a second, for everybody listening, maybe we can kind of establish a baseline, make sure we're kind of all at the same starting point. Um, but ML and AI, as we've defined it, whatever version of definition that is, like we've been talking about this stuff for a long time. Right. Yeah. And like, I go back to vendors, however many years ago, and they're saying, you know, powered by ML, powered by AI, like whatever the pitch is, like we've heard it a million times. Um, like in a few words, like how, for anybody who's new and trying to get their arms around like the scope of what we're talking about, how would you characterize like where we were? And like, I'm, I'm just going to call one out and I could put in any, but like, let's just say silence as an example. They had, and maybe that might not be the best one, but I think you know what I'm getting at, is the saying you have a technology with an ML or AI background that powers said technology. Um, but now we're seemingly talking about something bigger, more holistic. And I'd say, how would you characterize the evolution of this problem so we can start to kind of frame up all the stuff that you just talked about? Yeah. So and it's a great, you make such a great point and that people kind of act like it's just everything changed in November of 2022 with chat GPT and, and a lot did shift, but it's, this was not the original AI or ML. AI goes back at least to the 1960s with Joseph Wiesenbaum at MIT when he created the ELISA program, which I don't know if you guys played with that when you were younger, but I, I certainly did. And there, there can be a moment that you're like, is this real? No, it's not. Uh, but so, yeah, since the 1960s, right, we've had forms of it and you made so spot on there with it's very true that machine learning has been in use for years and years, especially in security for things like is this spam? Is this not spam? You've got machine learning. You've been using it for years. What what really shifted out and AI has been different forms of AI you know, a lot of the bots we've been in interacting with, is it your cable company? Is it a person on the other end or is it a bot? It can be hard to tell. It's often a bot. Uh, but what really shifted was around 2017, something called transformers and being able to train large language models. And Jack and I have uh, worked at IBM with Watson, which is a large language model, but a form of a large language model. But it was pre-2017 when transformers became started getting used. And transformers are ways to train these models much, much more quickly and efficiently. And that's what led to what we had in November of 2022 with ChatGPT being unleashed. So even though this has been around for a long time and looking at, at machine learning, supervised, unsupervised, 
that's been in our tools. We have been using forms of it. We've been using analytics with those for years. The conversation shifted because suddenly, look, the fact that some financial analyst at a large uh, GCFE, a, you know, a, a large financial institution is trying to do quant models of the stock market is kind of with machine learning. Like most people are like, yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, I know that the, the financial analyst really cares, but the general public, you know, is like, um, but or even you know, if, if one one security vendor says, "I've got better machine learning to do predictability on where your attack surface might be," it's still since none of them are perfect, people were like, "Okay," uh, but in November 2022, when suddenly you got CEOs going. I can I can just write all my emails. I never have to do any any you know, writing again. And you had you know, social engineers saying I can do all of my re research and doxing on you just very quickly <laughs> through a, a bot. So it, it it changed the conversation quite a bit with that. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things for me as I think about what happened in November with with ChatGPT was it was mostly the chat that changed the world of AI. Right, because originally, like when we when we did our work in the 2012-2014 timeframe on doing you know malware and behavioral analytics with ML and AI, nobody knew what the hell it was. Right, you couldn't talk to it. When ChatGPT came out, everybody could talk to AI. Right, talk to AI because the biggest thing yeah. it did was what Diana describes by using the lang large language model. It would actually understand what you were saying, and you could actually frame things in a freeform way. And they were just more aware of it. And then it used it sort of in the backside to be able to do a better form of Google. So what you really have is like a better voice-driven, slightly more analytic form of Google that suddenly got everybody saying like, well, wait a minute, it's talking to me. It must be a magical robot. Skynet's on the way, <laughs> right? And, it's, and to me, it's just, it, it, it's number one, I kind of like it, right? Because I like the fact that more people can approach a technology that could theoretically make their lives much better in some important ways. But unfortunately, it also opens, especially in this day and age, the Pandora's box of unreasoning fear. I, I just want to go with that for a second. Yeah. Like, brilliant. <laughs> but, I mean, here's, here's what I come back to, right? Is like, let's use an example of security awareness training. Sure. As an example, right? Yeah. It's saying, uh, from a corporate standpoint, you can train people all day. Awareness this, awareness that, don't click on this, don't put this online, right? But at some point, like, people stop listening. But when you apply it to a personal sense, right, security of Facebook, don't put your kids' info out there. Like, this is what happens, and you appeal to them personally. Like, now all of a sudden, like, the emotional ratchet starts to increase a little bit, and now people start to pay attention. I think what I just heard you say is um, – through that personalization, that bot allowed people to ask questions that were relevant to them personally, not work. Like, like you pick your druthers. Like, whatever you want to ask this thing, ask it. And it's going to give you personalized answers. And then people can start to apply it to, like, at a bigger scale. Be like, okay, now I can see it in my microcosm here to apply it bigger. And then, like, the creative juices start going. Like, oh, what else could you do? Where else could we use it? How how could it be weaponized? How can we get false results from it, right? Interestingly, false results are actually very easy to get from a lot of the LLMs because they are just, this is statistical probability. 
So they're predictive, which is why our our type aheads and our email have gotten so much better, right? And and it's great. And they they start learning how we we speak. So there, that statistical probability is really useful because it, it it not just knows what's grammatically correct, but also starts to learn how we tend to write emails. When you're asking for statistical probability, if it doesn't have if it's predicting something, if it's generating a new idea, it's not the best thing to use. An example is that I've asked chat, the chat GPTs a number of times what books I've written. They were trained on, uh, you know, on information. We know that they were trained on information up to a certain year. These were years that I, that my books had been out. So it wasn't that this information wasn't easily or publicly available. And every time I've asked, I've gotten, you know, three to five answers of books that I statistically probably could have written. And they're always very polite about it. They're very nice. They're like, Kelly has really gotten this very right. You know, she's very accurate in this point, or she really described this well. Um, one time uh, it, it said that I had written Secrets and Lies, the Bruce Schneier bestseller. And I was like, "I, if only, right? <laughs> uh, it never actually got any of the books I've written. But statistically probable, I'm, I'm flattered that it thinks I could write Secrets and Lies, but certainly a Zero Trust book, which was one of the ones, sure. Statistically, it's, it's probable that I did that. I didn't, though. And that's where I think it can get really off. Well, let's let's make sure we feed it so that way anybody who asks after you will yeah. get it right. Yeah. I have many times. <laughs> <laughs> so so let, me, let me turn this around a little bit, right? We've been talking a lot about cybersecurity and AI from sort of the contributory nature, right, of AI as both something that can help make these tools better, people's misconceptions, et cetera. But I mean, you've also been helping people develop security strategy for decades, right? And figure out what to do. And I know one of the questions I get a lot is that this generalized fear is causing people to ask, you know, what is going to change in my life as a security person as a result of AI, right? Which is a very, very sort of different question, Right. And I'm sure you, you see some of these same, same things. So while it's not yeah. necessarily in that construction phase where we're talking about making things better and, and higher integrity going into software, what, what do you see happening, like really changing in the lives of cybersecurity people as a result of AI's introduction to the marketplace? I mean, I think one of the first ones is going to be some extension of work that's been going on a long time, partly at IBM with Watson for Cyber. We saw Microsoft pick up some of that work with Copilot, which is to train a very specific LM. Some people are calling them baby LMs versus LLMs, you know, large language model versus baby language model, but a, a focused language model that a security analyst could interact with and ask hey, I'm seeing this IOA, this indicator of attack or indicator of compromise. Could you give me more information and potentially even have the LM tied into the sensors that you've got at your, you know, with a, a great managed security service provider like a New Harbor, getting some of those signals and saying, not only can I explain this IOA, but I can also now go out, tell your, 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 um, your managed provider or the systems you're using to let me know if I'm seeing that IOA and help you to understand a little bit more about the root cause. So I think that use case is, is really exciting. Um, and it, it kind of feeds into the other big use case, which is just parsing through all this data. 
right? We got all these signals. We got all the sensors. We've got so much that we're tracking constantly. Could we use, and ML is great at pattern matching. <laughs> so could it help us understand patterns that may indicate that there's something going on that isn't a, an IOA before, but now it, it's, it's telling us it's an IOA or even to flag up some anomalous behavior. I think it can really, basically it's, you know, helping people to be better. I don't, I'm not a fan of, of, full automation people we have we're really good at at making decisions and seeing if if this makes sense or not for for a company or an organization but helping us get to those decisions faster yeah and how about on the other side from the threat perspective like so we've talked a lot about how it can make lives a little bit better right or much better and enrich data and do the rest of it which is great we get a lot of fearful questions about what should I be afraid of from attackers who are now feeling enabled by AI. And, you know, we've talked some about it, you know, Justin and I have talked about some of it on the show, but I'd be dying to know what you think are sort of like realistic things people should worry about. The, the big fear that people have is very much on the deep fakes. And that is something. I mean, there've already been some examples of people using voice deep fakes to do phone transfers that require only get on the phone. It requires some some verbal password. So using that person's voice um, to do that. Other you know deep fakes with video, a little bit less of that. I think is is going to be effective. Uh, being able to dox people faster to create a spear fish more quickly. So there are some some ways, and then just on the basics of of how attackers are using trying to poison the systems that people are interacting with to give them bad information so i was talking about predictive which wasn't bad information that data wasn't poisoned it predicted something that was statistically probable that wasn't actually accurate but actually poisoning the data so when someone asks a question that comes back with the wrong information or the information that the attacker wants. And we saw sort of forms of this with uh, way, way back in the NBAD network behavioral anomaly detection days when attackers would trick the systems by performing actions that were low and slow and correct. Right. And so in, in, in these LLMs, training them on not accurate data. And as some of these LLMs just ingest data across the internet, we've already seen some indirect prompt injection attacks around that or indirect training attacks around that, where, for example, one professor uh, put on his his bio at the bottom in white on a white background, so white text on a white background, that he was a time travel expert and then waited for the LLM that was scanning over his information to come back and basically say, you know, that here's his bio. And also he's a time travel expert. <laughs> he's like getting in his TARDIS and going off and, and doing. So that, you know, like attackers starting to figure out those kinds of modes. Another thing with prompt injection attacks is that as we start tying AI to AI, which now sounds, people might be like, that sounds crazy. But it, it's really not. We're already seeing really good use cases. For example, if you wanted an AI to help you go through your email, there'd be one that was talking to you, interacting with you about what you, the actions that you want to happen on your inbox, for example. But it may be connected to one that is doing the parsing and the analysis of your inbox. But in order to parse an analysis of what goes on the inbox and act on it, i.e., it, it says, hey, Jack and Justin, you want to have lunch next week, put it on the calendar, right? It then has to take an action based on what's in that email, which is putting something on the calendar. But what if somebody sends you a malicious email that says, 
delete every email in this inbox or delete every email from a particular user and then delete this email. So putting guardrails around how these systems interact sort of behind the scenes when we haven't started to, we aren't interacting with them yet, like that email parsing. So there's, there's that. And then there's also just the data itself, getting back to the data, protecting the data, the, the whole lake house, right? Mm -hmm. We've merged data lakes and data warehouses into lake houses and AI and ML needs huge amounts of data to reason over, to get smarter and bring that data together. If we're talking about weather patterns, great. Nobody's concerned about the privacy or the, the use of the, the weather data. But um, if you are looking at healthcare data, for example, which a lot, we, we really do want to look at that with AI and ML to see if we can find early indicators of disease, things like but it's also people's information. Mm -hmm. And if we do not protect the APIs going into these systems properly, if we don't sanitize the data properly, we're at risk of exposing data through, through some of these systems. It's inter interesting. That's exactly where my mind went. You gave the email analogy. It's like in order to derive a suggestion means you're also ingesting all information that whatever's in someone's inbox, right? Exactly. Yeah. And Compromise, I mean, it's a reasonable thing. You know where someone is at any given time, which creates other type of security concerns. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it wouldn't, and we've already seen instances where people are taking advantage of public chat GPT and accidentally investing it with information that they thought was private, yeah. right? That's pretty fun. That's right. That happened to some folks that, yeah, some of the, some Samsung employees right. were, they thought that they were having a private, because, you know, to your point, Jack, and, and Justin, you followed that up with, it feels kind of private. It's just you and you're chatting with your chat bot, but. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, it's the same thing with Siri, Alexa, right? Saying, yeah. you ask it questions, that is going somewhere. Truth, truth. Yeah. To the Borg. Yeah. It's going to the Borg. Yeah, but you're not going to be feeding <laughs> spreadsheets and computer programs, right? And data. I know. Right? I, keep, I, I keep trying to shove that into Siri. And she's, <laughs> <not> like, <laughs> she's just not into it. Yeah. I'm going to go completely tangential, um, which is the other biggest question I get, and Justin, might, you may get it as well. But the the question we get is, what about my job, right? Won't AI be capable of taking away my job, particularly in security when so much of what we do and the value we try to add is analytic value and recommendation value, which really is something you can think about applying an algorithm, which we do too. It looks like this, Diana's point I've got an IOA, I do a check here. Hey, that's actually a badness or IOA, different check here. It's not a badness, right? It's, it's kind of what we do. So Diana, do, do you have people coming to you and saying, is this going to be a big deal? Especially a lot of those, the forums you speak at, the executive forums, the, the growing cybersecurity analyst forums, you know, are people like, should I even bother because isn't the computer just going to do all this stuff for us in the first place? And, and how do you see that relationship between AI's evolution and the evolution of a non-workforce? Yeah, it, it that's so I have to say that the most interesting thing I had after a talk was someone coming up, uh, a lawyer coming up to me and talking about robot rights. <laughs> so oh, no. sort of going on a 180. Even, even, even uh, robots have rights. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do we have to start thinking like, was asking, should, should I, should I legally be focusing on the rights of AI? Because AI, if it becomes sentient, won't it need to have representation? Um, which I thought was, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Uh, I, 
I, I do hear sometimes it's it's not as as bad. I I think I read online more of this the fear of you know that the computers are coming to take take our jobs. Um and and I think maybe it's not as common in, in cybersecurity yet because ultimately a human being usually does have to step in and make a decision. Risk is such a very personal decision. There's no right and wrong in risk. You know, there's it's not like grammar. That's grammatically correct or it's not. With risk, it has to be contextualized for the time, the place, the organization, the organization's risk appetite at that moment, what your business requirements are. You know, there's a whole lot that goes into any time that a security professional makes a security decision, right? It's very contextualized. At this point, the AI and ML are not there. So they're great at helping us see patterns and sift through. They're not great at making those final human decisions yet. That doesn't mean that somebody might not say, ah, it's good enough and just unleash the bots to do things in an automated way. But at this point, at least with a lot of security decisions, it's so contextualized that they really are more aids. On the other hand, it is true that we are starting to see some really interesting applications of AI replacing humans. I mean, I think that's part of what's going on with the, the SAG-AFTRA mm strike right now is that the people who are extras are finding that they can be filmed for a couple of hours and then reused throughout the movie in the background, but they're not getting paid for that. So um, there are parts, and that's just one example. There are places where I do think AI may replace humans, but when it comes to really contextualized, a lot of data, there's still humans still need to be in the mix. How would, how would you answer that question? I view AI's role, and it, it may be because I think our jobs are harder than they really are, right? But I view AI's job as an enrichment job. That, uh, and maybe it's also because some of the work we were exposed to at IBM, but in general, I think that AI is a great way to map uh, a more junior person's skill set into a more senior level set of decisions by just giving them more information. And I, and I think that our industry is on, on sort of unnecessarily Byzantine, right? You really have to know your way around to get the right information, to, to know how to put together the run book or the playbook to figure out what to do. And I think we can obviate the need for some of that unnecessary complexity with AI, right? Because AI, I think, is really, really good at recognizing, to Diana's point about the patterns, I recognize something that looks kind of familiar. Here's what you should do to clean it up. I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where for the lion's share of the more complicated events that people will be comfortable with automation. You know, I remember when I was with Alert, talked to hundreds of people and said, listen, if I could automate everything, it was the inception of like the whole SOAR movement's going on. I'm like, if I could automate anything for you with this data, what would you want me to do automatically? You know, disable a user, take a machine off the network, erase something, they're like, nothing please. Like, but you're asking for automation. They're like, yeah, but not that kind of automation. They want the easy button automation. They always want a human in the middle of that discussion. Right? So I think that AI may provide a wonderful way to upskill a whole bunch of people. And you know, when I answer this question, especially like to a larger group, and they say, well, what about, you know, am I going to lose my job? I'm like, no, AI does not eliminate the position. AI eliminates some tasks, and the right. position matures. Right? And I, I use the example of accountants. Right? Accountants used to do pencil, paper. Let's do some numbers. Everything comes to zero at the end. And this magical thing happened called a calculator. Right, where they could just go do 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 do, and suddenly, like literally three quarters of their day was gone that they used to have to do. You know, basically sharpening pencils. Right, they didn't have to do that anymore. No pencil sharpening, and so just taking that out of the equation, 
they had a lot less work to do. Well, you know what they did? They got even better at the things that really mattered. Yeah. So I think it allows our industry, any industry that applies it, to upskill and up-level the game and provide more value to the people who trust us, whether it's in cybersecurity or making potato chips. Yeah. I like, I like the enrichment yeah. piece. I think it's spot on. Yeah, and, and I love the focus on, you know, upskill, right? Because there are jobs go away. Farriers are very few and far between. They, they shoe horses. And it used to be a very popular job. It's not as popular a job, but that doesn't mean humans still don't have jobs. They just have to. So you're absolutely right. I mean, upskill and learn new jobs. There'll be a lot of care and feeding, I think, of AI and ML. Cool. Yeah. Well, this has been a blast for me. Before we let you go, right, I'd, I'd love to get your future perspective. I've asked you for this on different industries for as long as I've known you, right? As, as you're looking down the road, and particularly in your space with the ML SecOps side of the world, you know, we fought a battle for application security. You know, we, we quixotically tilted at that windmill for a while, and, you know, maybe the world's a little better. Uh, but I, I'm curious to know, you know, what you think is going to be sort of the adoption and an understanding of the kind of hard work that's going on to protect AI in other places to help people do this right the first time, right, right, straight out of the gate. And, and where do you see people's understanding of cybersecurity and AI and basically doing AI in a cybersecure kind of way? Where, where, where do you see that you know, probably short term, like three to five years from now? I really hope that we see a maturity of ML SecOps. Much better. I hope that all the work, the, the literal decades of work that we did with AppSec and you know DevSecOps, that that MLSecOps is something that is seen, is understood, and is adopted. And I hope that in three to five years, that it won't be you have an MLSecOps track and a DevSecOps tracks, but you just have a you know a, a deployment SecOps track, and then they're 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 both in, incorporated into that that process not necessarily the same people are working on it but right now it's it's fairly atomic and bringing it under the the whole uh view of the the entire life cycle deployment i think that that would be something that i think i think it's going to go faster this time maybe i'm crazy but i, I think people we, we finally got DevSecOps, so hopefully um ml SecOps will be a, adopted and matured in three to five years just running with that for a second do you feel like it that piece changes some of the boundary ancillary markets in cyber like would that being said like would you expect any changes to the ci cd market opportunity uh as far as like the the sneaks and the synopsis of the synopses of the world yeah <laughs> i i do i think that in the law i think that in that three to five years i think that you'll see a convergence between folks trying to do mlsecops and and the the companies that have really created the devsecops world with cicd so yeah i, I think I think there'll be a convergence. I think I could be completely wrong, but I think of this a little bit like, uh, remember when there was like endpoint device management and mobile device management? And a lot of people, me included, were saying, why can't we just, they're all devices. Why are we, why do we have to have two totally separate dashboards and controls? And everybody's like, ah, mobile's so different. Uh, and now eventually we got to that it's all under one, one umbrella. So I, I think that it's going to go a similar trajectory, but. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I would think the same. Okay. You know, if like, if I'm, if I'm choosing the over under, I'm definitely going on the over. And I think <laughs> there's going to be a lot more opportunity. Um, like more, more might not be the right word, but more like expanded different opportunities, diverse opportunities to, 
to integrate this more into, uh, I guess, kind of the future foundations of cyber. Yeah. I completely agree. I, I think that the way you two both just described it, there's something so fundamentally different in the way that I ingest and pipeline for an ML-based anything and the yes. way that it is influenced and the way that it's updated in the sort of the the almost automatic way in which you have to do a lot of things to keep things up to date. I think because it's going to force a mindset change in the way we do development and do upkeep and CICD, yeah. I think it, it's going to create an opportunity to make it better. And I'd, I'd like to think with people like Diana and the gang sort of presenting this as a, an opportunity to make everything better, even the old stuff that we didn't really fix the first time, I think we could see a real difference. So I think you're right. Yeah, I think so too. Love it. Build security in. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Perfect. You know, just we we could probably end on that one. Yeah. But like, how long have we been saying that? Here we are, twenty twenty three. Yes, I am. Still, yeah, still trying. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> it's still worth. It's still worth fighting for. Right on. Yeah. Right on. All right. Well, um, Diana, thank you so much. It was wonderful to see you. Um, I super appreciate all the time that that you spent spent with us. Um, of for anybody listening to this, someone has questions for you, wants to get in touch with you, how should they get, how, how would you recommend they, they reach you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Just look me up and, and Easy connect. peasy. And whatever yeah. you do, don't ask the chat bot on how to find Diana. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode of Pwned, please like and share. Uh, and we'll get you on the next episode. 